So we do have kids here. Kids, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had that thought? Like maybe your parents say or do say, please don't answer out loud. This is in your head, okay? Because I don't want any incriminating evidence against you. Kids, have you ever had that thought? Not this again. Your parents come to you and say, you need to clean your room. And in your head, you're going, not this again. Why aren't your grades up? Oh, come on, not this again. Why didn't you turn off the lights? That's a big one in my house. It's funny. I got that from my parents. And, and we have like all LED bulbs now. So I think we could run the light bulb for like a year and it would cost me about a nickel. But I'm still like, turn off the light. Why is it on? Nobody's in there. And I'm sure my kids, you could tell it in their eye roll. Just, oh, come on, dad. You know, as you get older, it doesn't stop. <laughs> In fact, I think as you get older, you have more things to say to, not this again. Like, I thought we fixed that already. You know, the water heater goes out or something. Oh, come on, not this again. Washing machine breaks down or just, you know, laundry in general every day. At our house, it's almost every hour. Like, just constant, not this again. As we get older, too, we look at the world, the news. COVID. Not this again. That's how I felt this week. We started calling people. We had some holes in our volunteer schedule, and it was sort of like, okay, we'll just call around, you know, get some people to fill in. Oh, yeah, I have COVID too. Okay. Called another person. Yeah, we just tested positive. Okay. We just kept calling, and finally I was like, I reached out to the elders. I'm like, um, we have a bit of an issue here. <laughs> like, we've got a good 15 people right now with COVID, so let's just be careful. So that's why we canceled Sunday school today. We're just trying to be careful. It's also why there's no, no coffee. So if you want coffee, don't blame me. It's not my fault. It's COVID. Blame COVID. Don't blame me, okay? It was my call. But it's COVID. Blame COVID. Not this again, right? Aren't we done with it? Come on, let's move on. Turn on the news. <gasps> One nation's attacking another. Not this again. Come on, do we never learn, right? Does the world never learn? What happened to the war to end all wars? What happened to that? Well, what happened was another world war in like Korea and Vietnam and Gulf and now this and Afghanistan. It's just one thing after another. Not this again. Same old story. Maybe you look at your life and you go, why did I mess up again? Maybe there's certain sins you look at and think, I thought I was done with that. Not this again. It's just the same old story. But it's interesting as we come to Scripture, as you learn more about the overview of God's Word from beginning to end, that phrase should come up again and again in your mind. This again? I feel like this story is familiar. Didn't, didn't those same people mess up last time? But then you also read that God is merciful again and again and again. He shows mercy. So how do we respond to that? Do we take it for granted? Oh, well, no big deal. Send again. God's merciful. doesn't really matter. Should we just be flipping about it? Should we wallow in misery and grief because we can't stop sinning? I'm a horrible person. I can't do anything right, God. I know you don't love me anymore. You just reject me. It doesn't matter. I'm such a sinner. I sinned again, and we're just hopeless. Those are opposite ends of the spectrum, and neither one of them is true to what Scripture says. 
Or do we come to God and say, hey, God, I sinned, but uh, you got to show me mercy. You're just going to, you're going to forgive me. And we just demand mercy from God. Should we look to God and think, he just hates me. And he's going to smite me and strike me down. And my life is over and God's just mad at me. How do we view the same old story in our lives, in our world, in our history, in scripture? And today we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, open up to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, should be one in the chair in front of you, underneath. Nehemiah chapter 9. And let me give you a little bit of context, a bit of historical context leading up to this passage. We've been in this series on Ezra and Nehemiah, and to give context to those books, God reaches out to Abraham, this guy, and he he chooses him and has a relationship with him, and from him come the Jewish people, the Israelites, kind of the main subject or the main people group that are dealt with throughout the Old Testament and even into the new. And so God has this relationship with him, with them. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt, stuck, trapped, hopeless, and God rescues them. The Exodus story saves them out of Egypt. He brings them into the wilderness. And there he says, okay, I've saved you. Now this is what it's going to look like to live in a relationship with me. And he gives them his law, how they should live in relationship with him. He leads them through the wilderness to the promised land. Time after time after time, they are unfaithful. He sends them prophets to warn them. And time after time after time, they refuse to listen. Same old story. And so God takes them into exile. They have to leave their homes behind. Their land is conquered. Many of their cities are demolished. And they're taken to live in a foreign land. A foreign land that does not support what they believe. And there again, they feel hopeless and lost. And yet God rescues them. And that's where Ezra and Nehemiah come in. God begins to bring people back to the promised land, begins to reestablish them in that promised land. And they build the temple and reestablish their temple worship. They read the law and they reestablish the people's dedication to the law. And then Nehemiah comes along and builds the, the city wall and they have protection there in their home. And now there's this big question, what now? Who are we and are we going to learn from what happened? How is it going to be different this time? Or is it going to be the same old story? And so leading up to Nehemiah chapter 9, the context here in Nehemiah is they are back in the land. They have built the wall. And after they built the wall, they decided to open up the word of God and spend a whole week every day for hours and hours and hours each day, someone publicly read the word, publicly proclaimed it and explained it to them. They wanted the word of God. They said, we're going to be different. We need to hear from God's word. But a difficult thing happens as it often does when we actually open up God's word and read it, not just the parts we want to read, but all of it we start seeing ourselves and seeing things about ourselves that we don't want to look at that are out of line with God's will. We start seeing our sin and we start seeing how bad that sin is and we go, oh, this is horrible. I I don't want to read this. I don't want to think about it. But they kept reading and they kept on thinking about it and they began to weep and mourn 
They said, we are sinners. God has been so faithful to us, but we and our people before us have sinned greatly. If you, remember, if you were here last week and you remember, we looked at chapter 8. And the leader said, yes, there is a time to mourn, but not right now. And they celebrated for a week and more the Festival of Tabernacles, a a reminder of how God had rescued them and cared for them in the wilderness. And so before they, they wept and mourned for their sin, they needed to rejoice over what God has done. And that's where we pick it up here in chapter 9. They are coming back and revisiting where they started, the weeping and the mourning and the grief over their sin that they had put off for a while. So let's pick it up in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, where they really are impacted with the need for confession and repentance. Now, understand, it's been almost a whole month since all of this began the public reading of the word of God, the public acknowledgement that they needed to grieve and mourn over their sin. And and then they went through the festival and a time after the festival, it's been around 23 days or so. And they haven't forgotten. That's what's so amazing. They haven't forgotten, wow, we still need to mourn for our sin. And so we pick it up in verse one. Let's look at one through five. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent who had separated themselves from all foreigners, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Kenani, They cried out loud with voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah. That's a fun one. Pethahiah said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Let's just pause there. Here they are. And they remember. Right? How many times do we realize we've done something wrong? And we just kind of. Like in the moment, we feel really bad. In the moment, we're sorry. In the moment, we know maybe we should do something about this. Maybe we need to confess to someone I did something wrong. Maybe in the moment, I need to go to the Lord and pray. But then busyness comes up and we forget. I love that they purposefully came back to this. We can't always, wherever we are in every moment, just fall on our face. and Oh my goodness, I'm such a sinner. Uh, Please forgive me. But there is a time to come back to that and say, God, I need to deal with this. And it's interesting how they deal with it. Again, for a quarter of the day, for about three hours, they pour over scripture. Sometimes people come to me and say, you know, I I really think this church just makes too much of God's word. I'm not kidding. I've had people say that to me. You're making an idol out of the word of God. I'm not sure that's entirely possible. This is God's word. Now, if we are worshiping the word as if it is this book and this text that saves us, I get it. But this is the very word of God. And as I look at the Old Testament and the Israelites, they poured over his word. We need to rejoice. What are we going to do? Read the word for hours. We need to confess. What are we going to do? Read the word for hours. We need to be obedient. What are we going to do? Read the word. We cannot possibly, I believe, make too much of the word of God in our lives and in our church. 
They poured over his word. Again, we see that our relationship with God is shaped by his word, is founded on the truth of his word that's revealed to us. To be the people of God, who believe in God, who are saved by God, we must be people who love God's word. And look at the beginning of verse 5 there. He says, stand up and praise the Lord your God. I thought that was really interesting after I studied this passage a few times. And I came back to that verse because the rest of this chapter is going to be about confession of sin and repentance. Confession of sin and repentance. That's the main theme. And yet the leaders kick it all off with let's Praise God. Us acknowledging our sin and confessing our sin is not at odds with praising God. In fact, it is consistent with praising God. In fact, I would go so far as to say if praise and worship do not at some point in some way contain confession and repentance, it is not true praise. To look at God and worship him and praise him for who he is, there has to be a corresponding look at ourselves and say, I am a sinner and I am in need of salvation. Now, before I go on here, we're going to walk through the rest of this chapter. And what the Israelites do, especially the leaders here in this chapter, is fascinating because they rehearse all of the Old Testament. They review everything that God has done. If, you know, I, as a pastor, I like to read commentaries. I know to some people that just sounds so boring, but commentaries help us. They, they go to God's word and a scholar says this word relates to this and this theme. And it's man's word, man's word, but it helps us to understand. It gives us a big picture. And I like reading a lot of different commentaries. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a inspired commentary in the Old Testament? Wouldn't it be nice if God's just like, here's what I meant for you to pay attention to. Here's the important parts. Well, it's all important, but the most important parts and how it all ties together. That's what Nehemiah 9 is. It is an inspired overview of all of Scripture. And as we walk through this, I just need to give you a heads up. It is quite possible during this sermon God is going to call to your mind some specific sins that you need to repent of, that you need to confess. And I want you to answer the question right now in your own mind and heart. Will you listen? Will you respond? We all need to be challenged with that. As we read God's word, we will be confused. impacted and and made aware of our own sin will we respond and repent so let's look at how they rehearse god's work throughout the old testament we're going to go through this chapter twice i'm not going to read it all twice but we're going to go through it twice first to get a high level overview of the events that the uh the leaders are dealing with kind of their overview of scripture the perspective of God's past work. Then we're going to go back and look at some key themes. So let's start with how they kind of rehearse or remind themselves of what God has done throughout their history. I was in uh, a lot of dramas in junior high. I love drama. 
I, I was terrified. I never thought I would like it. I was absolutely terrified of public speaking at that time. Kind of ironic. Um, hated being up in front of people and on a stage. God has a great sense of humor. But I got involved in drama. And, and, you know, we would go through a scene. We would kind of stumble through it, struggle through it. And then the director would come up and she would point out, like, okay, you did this right. You did this wrong. And then she would say, do it again. And we would do it again. She would say, you got this right and this wrong. Do it again. Do it again. Run it again. Rehearse it again over and over and over again to the point where we were like, we got this. Come on, we've, we've got it. Do it again. Run it again over and over, especially the week or two leading up to the show. We would be there from after school till about 930 at night every day for a week or two leading up to the show, mostly because we had screwed up so much in the weeks previous and we needed to get it right. Do it again. Rehearse it again. But do you know what happened by doing that over and over again and running those scenes and running those lines over and over again? Do you know what happened on the night of the show? We did it because we knew it, because we had rehearsed it over and over again. I want to challenge you, especially if you've been a Christian for a while. It is easy to think, I already know this. If you grew up going to Sunday school or, or you've spent time in school, I already know these stories. I've heard them a thousand times. I already know them. Run it again. Rehearse it again. Listen again. That's what they're doing here. And they're going to go all the way back to the very beginning and look at what God has done. Look at the end of verse 5 through verse 6. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Do you see where they're starting? The very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where they're starting. If we're going to have a proper attitude about ourselves, proper attitude about who God is, proper acknowledgement of our own sin, we must start with the truth that there is a God and he created all things. This is the Lord's world, his world. It belongs to him. He made it for a purpose. It's his world. We've got to start there. So that's the first step in rehearsing what God has done. God made everything, including us. Look at verses seven and eight. You were the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. He found his heart faithful to you. You made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. So they start with creation and now they move to their beginning as a people group. And they go back and they say, God, you chose Abram. They don't come to the Lord and say, God, we were so amazing that you picked us. They acknowledge you made a choice, Lord. You chose Abram. They are who they are because of God's choice, God's work, God's promise. So here's the rehearsal. God made everything. And in his grace, he chose people to be his own. 
Look at verses 9 through 12. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. They look back at their history and say, God, you you chose us and you saved us. When you look at the Old Testament and how the Israelites repeat what happened at the Red Sea, what I have come to realize is that this is what they saw as their salvation story. They could not have saved themselves out of Egypt. They could not do it. They were lost, hopeless, and completely stuck. And God saved them. In fact, in a moment, we're going to look at the law. And he comes to them and he starts the law by saying, I'm the God who did that. I'm the God that saved you. Now let's talk about what that looks like. But they come and they remind themselves, we were saved out of slavery because of the miraculous way that God saved us through the Red Sea. So God created all things. He chose his people. He saved his people. Look at 13 through 21. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them your commands, decrees and laws through which or through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. God came to them and said, now I have saved you. And he gives them his law. Now this is the people you are to be. I saved you and you are to be different. That's what the law is. It's a recognition of how different they are to be because God, their God who saved them is with them. And the story, and this is one of these we know so well, but Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, and he comes back down after a lengthy period of time. And you would think that the people who were so excited for God to meet them there in the wilderness be like, yes, Moses has returned. Now we get to hear from the Lord. And instead they're having a party and getting drunk and doing despicable things and worshiping a golden idol. Not a good look for the people of God. And yet we also see that God chooses to show mercy. 
Not only does he show mercy to these people who don't deserve it, he continues to help them. He continues to feed them and give them water and provide for them during the wilderness wanderings. And here we see a new theme coming in. The people, though God has been faithful, the people are unfaithful. Yet God shows mercy. So God created all things. He chose his people. He saves his people. He tells his people how to live in relationship with him. Look at verses 22 to 28. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with the kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But... They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Same old story. God brings them into the promised land. This ragtag group of Israelites who were enslaved and have traveled for 40 years through the wilderness now are coming into a land of fortified cities and kingdoms and cities that have been there for generations. And they have no hope to overcome them. Yet God steps in miraculously and they conquer the promised land. And you would think then, man, we've messed up so many times, but now we're here. Now we're settled in this promised land that God has given us. Let's live right. But it's the same old story. And the author here sums up the cycle of the judges from the book of Judges. God is faithful. People are unfaithful. They get in trouble. God rescues them. God is faithful. People are unfaithful. They get in trouble. God rescues them. On and on and on through the book of Judges, it happens. So God created all things chose his people, saves his people, tells his people how to live in relationship with him, and he provides for them a home, and he protects them. But now they move to the time of the kings and the chronicles. Look at verse 29. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant, disobeyed your commands. They send against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen for many years you were patient with them by your spirit. You warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious 
and merciful God. God establishes them in the promised land. This is it. We're home. We've arrived. And again, they are unfaithful. If you've read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, I'll tell you, you get that sense, not this again, over and over again. It's so confusing, but the themes of just constant rebellion and disobedience come up again and again. And God warns them, sends them prophets. I love you guys. Return to me. Trust in me or I'm going to have to discipline you. And that's exactly what happened. So they rehearse all this. God created all things, chose his people, saves his people, tells his people how to live in relationship with him, provides a home for them and protects them, and then warns them from his word. And when they refuse to obey, he disciplines them. And all of this has led up to their moment, their time, the question of how they are going to live in a relationship with God. And that's where the passage finishes up. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. In all that has happened to us, you have remained faithful You have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they, so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundance, abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. They come to their present situation and they acknowledge a couple things. God has been incredibly faithful and good to them but they're not really free. They're still experiencing hardship. Sure, they're back in the promised land, but they're not really in control of the promised land. The Persians are. They live under the authority of a foreign king. And at times, living under that authority is oppressive and difficult. And they use that phrase, we are slaves today. But they also admit, we too are sinners They don't come to the Lord and say, all those horrible people, they did horrible things, but God, we're so good. They come to God and say, we get it, Lord. As we look at our history, we are no different. But there's an implication underneath this passage that I just love. God, we are no different, but God, we also know you are no different. You who are righteous and powerful are also merciful. That's what they're clinging to. As they have rehearsed who God is and what he has done, they are clinging to the mercy of God. And they are saying, God, it's the same old story. We are trusting that you will be merciful. We're confessing our sin and crying out for your mercy. Friends, this is what happens when you get a big picture of scriptures. 
When you're able to take the little Sunday school stories and put them together in this grand tapestry of God's faithfulness, a powerful picture emerges of a faithful, holy, and merciful God. One of the things we require from an elder candidate is to write a couple paragraphs that are an overview of all of Scripture. All of it. Could you? I think it's a good question for every Christian. Could you talk to someone and say, let me tell you an overview of God's word? That's powerful, friends. Not just for the person you're talking to, but for you. To be able to go like they did here in Nehemiah 9 and have an overview of who God is and how he has worked. We need to rehearse these things, retell them to ourselves and our children and our churches and our Sunday schools and small groups and around our dinner tables. Remind yourself of who God is and what he has done. But I said I wanted to go through this twice because now I want to go back and just look at a few key verses. And what we see is this repetition of God's mercy toward his people and yet the repetition of their sin toward God. And my hope, my prayer, and I know this is hard, is that each one of us will see ourselves in this mirror. We, just like they, are sinners. We, just like they did, we need God's mercy. And so, again, I'm not going to read it all, but as you think back to the passage that I've read, all of chapter 9 here, We see a repetition of God, you did this. He created them, chose them, called them, saved them, communicated with them, fought for them, warned them, even disciplined them over and over again. God, you have done this. We need to start there. So often we come to the Lord and we say, God, I, me, we, we start with us. Let's come to the Lord and start with God. God, you have done this. Because we are to respond to what God has done, not the other way around. We need to know who God is and what he's done. And that's where they start. But then throughout, they also talk about their responses. Verse 16, our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember. That word stiff-necked is powerful. And it hurts. There's a sting to this. Do you remember what idol they created while Moses was up on the mountain? They created a golden what? Calf. A cow. There was a word that they used. They were trying to lead the cow to plow the fields. The cow just kept pulling away because they were trying to lead the cow by the head, right? And it kept pulling away. And there was a word that the cow won't go where I want it to go. And the word was stiff-necked. That stiff-necked cow. He just won't go where I'm telling him to go. And God tells his people, you're just like your cow. You've become like that thing that you're worshiping. You're the stiff-necked ones. And the people recognize and say, God, we have been stiff-necked. You've been trying to lead us and guide us in mercy and love and hope, and we just keep on pulling away. Do you resonate with that? I do. Same old story, again and again. Why am I so stiff-necked? Verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against God. They committed awful blasphemies. 28, they did again what was evil in your sight. Verse 29, they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances. Do you ever feel this way? 
God, why? Why did I do this again? Why am I struggling with this again? Why am I facing this situation again? Why do we keep messing up even though God is so good to us? But don't stop there because they didn't. For each of these situations, God, you did this. Our people were unfaithful, but then they come back to God's mercy and covenant faithfulness. Verse 8, you have kept your promise because you are righteous. Verse 17, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. And at the end of verse 27, from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 31, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You want an overview of Scripture? God's at work. Powerful, righteous, amazing ways. We are sinners. Again and again, we fail. God is merciful. Over and over again, though his people don't deserve it, he rescues them, he saves them, he cleans them up, he brings them back in a right relationship with him. Does this ring true in your life? I really think as we study the Old Testament, and we must, we should see ourselves I remember as a child hearing those Sunday school lessons going, oh, man, those foolish people. Really? God just rescues Noah through the ark and then they get off his boat and they do that? They just sin right away? Really? God rescues them out of Egypt? They saw all these amazing signs and wonders and then God's talking to them from the mountain. They can hear the rumbling of thunder and they make a cow and they worship it? Man, they're so dumb. That's what I thought as a kid. They're so dumb. Those people, so glad we're not like those people. We're exactly like those people. This is our story. We fall, we struggle, we rebel, we sin. And God in his love and his mercy continues to call us back, to rescue us and to save us. We need to, in our own lives and in our churches and our families, we need to rehearse the word of God. Remind ourselves who God is and what he's done. We need to know these major themes of God's work, our sin, his mercy and forgiveness. There's so much great hope throughout all of Scripture. So there it is. Same old story. It's a beautiful story. God is faithful. We sin, but God shows mercy. And it goes on and on throughout Scripture. But there's this nagging question. Is that all there ever is? Is there no hope to break that cycle? Is there nothing to come in and say, can't this be different? As Paul Harvey would say, we have the rest of the story. We have a greater story than what they had to rehearse. We have the New Testament. We have John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That world, that rebellious world, that world that kept forgetting him and walking away, that's the world that God loved. That's what John's saying. He so loved that world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have something they didn't. We have Jesus. 
And he died to sin. He didn't just point it out. He didn't just say try harder. He died to it. And if you are a Christian, it is as if you died. When Christ died, you died to sin. And your sin has been paid for once for all. And then he rose from the grave. He didn't just say, now, just keep on doing what you're doing. He says, now, you are a new person in Jesus Christ. Because he rose, you rose. You are living a completely new life in Christ. You are not that person from the old story. You are not the same old you. You are new through Jesus Christ. Oh, sin still tries to draw us back. And I love the way Paul deals with that. He says, you you look at that sin. You look at that old you and you remind yourself, I'm not that person. Why would I live like that? I am not that person anymore. We can look at our sin and say, Christ has conquered it. Praise God. Let us constantly rehearse what God has done and remind ourselves of his mercy and be willing to admit our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. May we be people of your word, pouring over your word as we have done this morning. May we, may we do that in our own lives, our homes, our families, around Sunday school classes and small groups, Father. May you remind us of who you are. May we be willing to deal honestly with who we are, to confess our areas of struggle and our sin, and the ways that we rebel against you. May we be honest with ourselves and with you. But Father, may you also open our eyes to the incredible mercy you have shown throughout the ages, and especially the salvation you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today stuck in that same old story, same old things over and over again, may they look to your son, Jesus. May they cry out and say, save me. I trust that you died in my place. I accept what you have done on my behalf and I give my life to you. And then, Father, you begin writing a completely new story in our lives. And I pray, Father, for each one here saved by Jesus Christ, we would trust that story and live that story in our lives and in this world. Because I think this world desperately needs to see a brand new story, a different story. A story that is made different by your son, Jesus. In whose powerful name we pray. Amen.